For most of my pastoral ministry, I have taken the occasion of the new year to bring to the congregation a usually short series or even one message from some years. But I seek to bring a a series or a message to address what I believe are the particular needs of our church as we begin the new year. As I look back upon what we have been through or perhaps what we are facing, what do we need to have before us from God's Word right now as we begin 2014? In some years, we've dealt with some of the things that possibly we're doing right. In some years, perhaps we need to focus on some things that we're not doing, that we should be doing, or some things that we might not be doing right. However, my thinking, whatever I might, my intentions might be to bring to you, however much I think we should focus on this or focus on that, means nothing in comparison to what the head of the church has to say to his church. And the head of the church is not the pastor. It's Jesus Christ. He is the head of his church. In recent years, unfortunately, that seems to be a concept which has been lost on many congregations. Preachers seem to think that they lead, that they're, it's their church, that they're responsible. I've had in some of the places where I've pastored certain members of the congregation who thought it was their church. And how dare I bring what the Bible says? This is my church, preacher. How dare you tell us that we need to repent from sin? Or tell the head of our women's Sunday school class that she's a sinner because she's living with a man who's not her husband. How dare you tell us these things, preacher? This is our church. Or most of the time, though, it's the leaders of the church. And they get together and they conference. Maybe they'll get together with a bunch of them. And they'll conference. Well, what can we do to get people to come to our church this year? What can we do? Do we need to get a new band? Do we need to get new singers? Do we need to start some new kind of drummer thing going? What can we do to get people to come to our church? What gimmick can we come up with this year? It seems as though they think they know best. That they know better than God what to do to bring people into their church and to Increase the ministry. To expand the ministry. I remember reading from John MacArthur about a church that had come up with a great idea for the fall, this time of the year. They came up with this great idea about football. Any time a person brought someone to church, they would get a touchdown, and they had a scoreboard, a big scoreboard built on the side of the wall there in the front of the auditorium. You bring someone to church, and that's a touchdown. Or maybe if it's a whole family, it's a touchdown. If it's only one, you get a field goal. I don't know what a safety would have been, but anyway. But you get points, you see, and the more points you get, you get a prize. 
You're given something from the church for bringing people into the church. And it was a big deal. And they had the scoreboard. And they made big hoopla out of it. Well, MacArthur went to a conference, a pastor's conference or a conference, and he told that story in much the same way I did, in a form of criticism. Unfortunately, the pastor of the church that he was preaching in where he saw that was sitting in that conference. I don't care. It's still wrong. This sort of gimmicks that people come up with as if they're somehow helping God to get people saved. Well, God, you know, we, we know what to do. It's the 21st century. We know how to market to get people to come to our church. We're, we're smart in all these things. It's almost as if what God has to say is irrelevant or at least not nearly as important. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe there are legitimate ways that we need to let people know we're here and to spread the gospel by all means. But you cannot do that void of the head of the church and what he says, for what he says is vital. What he says is indispensable. What we come up with is at best, maybe, Good for the church. Maybe. So let's look at this a little bit before we actually focus on the church in Philadelphia, which is, as you see in the bulletin, the scheduled study. Dear Philadelphia, before we look at that, let's understand why we would even take the time to look at that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We have in this chapter and in this passage, it is also mentioned in Colossians chapter 1, but we have a very key principle for the Christian church or a key principle foundation of the Christian church. Look down to verse 18 where we read the Apostle Paul saying, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so that you may know what the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glory, of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in abundance with the working of His strength and of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And He has put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Why do we care what Jesus says from the Scriptures? Why is what Jesus says more important than what a preacher has to say or a gimmick or an idea that a preacher comes up with? Because it's His church. We are His body. He has redeemed us with His blood. He is the head of His church. Not a pope. Not a pastor. Not a choir director or a women's group. Christ is the head of His church. Not committees. Christ is the head of His church. 
verse 20, tells us clearly that He is seated at the right hand in heavenly places. He is far above any of these other things. Any other rulers, any other authority, any other power, any other dominion. He's the head of the church. And so it is vital, it is indispensable that not only do we know what He says to His church, but that we heed what He says to His church. It's not enough to just hear it and to know it, but we must be, as we often say, doers of the Word. Why? He is our King. There was a big controversy some years ago called the Lordship Controversy. Is Christ indeed Lord? Or can He just be your Savior? That's a big thing that came out of Dallas Theological Seminary at the turn of the last century. You can have Jesus as Savior, but not as your Lord. The Lordship of Christ is optional. I tell you today that that is absolute heresy. If you are a Christian, and if you are a member of a Christian church, if you are genuinely and truly of the body of Christ, He is your King. He is your Lord. And He expects you to do as He says in His Word. There's no option. Maybe you could have Him later on as Lord. No, if you are genuinely saved, He is your Lord. If you are in His church, He is the head of His church. If you are saved, He is your King. We serve King Jesus. Aren't you glad we serve King Jesus? And not the King of America? The fact of the matter is, it is Christ who gave His life for the church. That's what Paul is saying in this text. He gave His life for the church. And then He was raised up, verse 20. He was raised up to new life. And He is now seated at the right hand of God. But it's not like He's gone away. Remember, He sent the Holy Spirit. It's not like He's gone away. He hasn't left us orphans. He's given us the Holy Spirit and He's given us His Word. It is through His Word, by His Word, that we know what He wants. It's by His Word that we know what we are to do. And so we have the Word of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the Word of King Jesus. And we need to heed what He says. Now listen to this. Why would a preacher, why would a pastor, why does a pope think that they know better than God. When we read in verse 18 that He has the surpassing greatness of His power towards us who believe in accordance with the working of His strength and His might. Which strength and which might do you want? His or mine? If you say mine, you're in the wrong place. We want His strength, His might, His surpassing greatness. When we meet in the back for prayer in the morning before Sunday school and in the morning before the worship service, basically, by and large, what we are seeking to do is pray for the manifestation of God's glory in our church. When we meet for Sunday school or especially when we meet for for worship, that God would be exalted, that He would be manifested, that His glory would be preeminent, that Christ would be lifted up 
For it's when He is lifted up that He draws men to Himself. He is the one who is great. Not us. Not pastors. Not not preachers. Not committees. Not elders. Not popes. Not priests. Christ is supreme. He knows best. So, why not go by His Word? Why not look into His Word and study His Word and understand what His Word says and then you'll know what to do. Then you'll know what we need to do as a congregation. Now, I said to you when I began that I begin the year by trying to think about what we need to focus on and that is true. I do need to... You know, part of the thing is that He has given pastors as gifts to His church. Look over to chapter 4. He says so right here in chapter 4. Look at verse 7. We just kind of pick it up there. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's talking about Christ's gift. And then he says, therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. What is he talking about? Look at verse 11. And he gave some, that's the gifts, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and some as teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there, by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine and by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. And so on. Keep that in mind. We are to be mature, not uh, tossed to and fro by the scheming of men, but we are to be those who for the whole body is being fitted and held together by which every joint supplied according to the proper working of each individual part as it causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So Christ has gone. He has ascended back into heaven even as the text said. But in that He has given, He has poured out the Holy Spirit and He has given gifts to His church. And the gifts to His church are properly recognized elders Pastors or teachers. Not people who run off willy-nilly. He's given other portions of Scripture to show who should be and who should not be elders or pastors. But in the giving of those gifts, those men are not to run off and say, this is what we're going to do. They are to do what Christ has given them to do. They are to remain faithful to the ministry of the Word of Christ to preach in season and out. And to bring the word of truth to man. In that way, the body is built up. The body is strengthened. The body is real. And the body loves. That's the text. So, he's given those men to the church. He's given the gifts. He's given them thoughts. They think. They seek wisdom from God. But ultimately, they must bring God's word to the flock. So, yes, I'm on my knees. I pray asking God, what should I bring to the church? What does the church need? How can I scratch where they itch, as it is said? How can I bring them the truth that they need to hear? What is it, God, that the body needs to hear? And that's when we come to the decision to bring a message that might meet what the church needs. Jesus rules His body by His Word. 
And we live in a day where men seem to think that we need new revelation, fresh revelation, a new word from God, a fresh word from God. You know what this, this country needs? You know what churches in this country need? They don't need a new word. They need this word. They need this word back in the pulpits. They need this word expounded from the pulpits. They don't need new revelation. They don't need man's revelation. This is the infallible Word of God. We used to call it inspired and infallible Word of God. That was the big battle cry back in the 80s. It's the infallible, inspired Word of God. But they left one thing out. It's the complete Word of God. We don't need new men's thoughts or men's new thoughts. We don't need new revelation. We have it. It's right here from Jesus. So, as the head of His church, He guides His church, He governs His church by His Word. That's how we know how to order a church. That's how we know who should and should not be in the pulpit. That's how we do things from the Word of God. Christ has revealed His will and His ways to the church and what He expects His church to do is given in the Scriptures and He expects us to obey them. He expects us to go by them. With that foundation, wouldn't it be really nice if Jesus would actually just talk to our church though? Come on, Jesus. Just just talk to our church. Yes, we have the revealed will of God. We have Your Word. But... But tell us something. Tell this specific church something. That's what he did in the book of Revelation. Now we turn to Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. Because what we have here is our Lord addressing seven individual real churches. In chapter 2, he addresses several of these churches And then in chapter 3, several more for a total of seven. This is the head of his church directly addressing his church. A personal letter through the hand of his servant John to the seven individual churches. Now, 2014 marks the sixth year that we have looked at Jesus addressing each one of these churches. So, we're up to church six. Church 6 is the church in Philadelphia. It begins, as we read a little while ago, in verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. And so we begin today the sixth in this series of New Year's perspective messages. Dear Philadelphia. This is Jesus writing to that specific church. Dear Philadelphia. Now, in keeping with the proper biblical methods of interpretation, we cannot just pick up here without understanding some of the context. And so, what I would like for us to consider first are several aspects about the book of Revelation that lead us up to what's taking place here in chapter 3. And for that, we turn back to chapter 1 and we see what we could call the revelation in Revelation. The revelation in the Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1 reads, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants the things which must shortly take place. And He sent and communicated it by His angel to His bondservant John. Let's begin by that word 
revelation. The revelation. The word, as you have, I'm sure know, is apocalypsis. From the word apocalypto. Now, everybody's heard of apocalypse. In fact, I'm sure that there are some Bible translations that actually have printed there, uh, beginning at, uh, over in broad letters, the apocalypse, rather than the revelation. People have that word in their heads and they make it sound like it's a dreadful thing, a horrible thing. Apocalypse now. War, bombs, explosions, the end of times, the end of things. They think of the word apocalypse and they think it's horrible stuff. Terrible stuff is going to happen. The end stuff, people who will be dying. That's what apocalypse means, right? No, that's not at all what apocalypse means. The word apocalypse actually means to uncover. It means to open up what has been veiled or covered. In other words, it is to reveal or revelation. It is a revealing. And people even have the word revelation like, Oh no! Revelation! What a hard book! What a terrible thing. All those things I can't understand. We can't possibly read this book and know what's being said. Revelation. And by the way, for those of you who are new or visiting, I actually preach from other books besides Revelation and Daniel. You know, some preachers, I think, preach only from Daniel or Revelation. That's not the case. But Revelation is not a scary book. It's not a hard book to understand. No, I shouldn't say that. I know that there are some things in this book that are uh, picturesque, if I can say, and they do require some study and some research to understand what is being said. I'll talk about that in a minute. But it's not scary. It is a manifestation or an appearing, a revelation given. That's what the word means. A a revealing of what is covered or a manifestation of what is covered. A showing of what has been covered. And so we read in verse 1 that it is a revelation, an appearing, a showing of Jesus Christ. Revelation is not a scary book. It's a book that reveals Christ. It uncovers things about Jesus. It uncovers things about Christ. And it was written by, even as it says in verse 1, John. And again, it repeats that in verse 4. John to the seven churches. And that's the churches we'll talk about in a moment. But it was written by the Apostle John. Now, who was the Apostle John? Good, sweet Apostle John. He was the Apostle that leaned on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. Or at the Lord's Supper. He was the the apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's John. So this is good old sweet John who wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, the epistles of John. And yes, this is the same John who now gives us this revelation of Jesus Christ. John's not a scary guy. John's a good guy. He's revealed Christ to us. And so here we have the Apostle whom Jesus loved giving us a revelation of Jesus. Don't you love Jesus? 
John loved Jesus. Don't you love Jesus? Well, here is a revelation of the one you love. Now, that makes this book a lot easier to read, doesn't it? Not scary at all. It's a revelation of the one you love, Jesus. That's what the book of Revelation is. Don't be afraid of it. It's about your Savior. And He only wants what is best for you. Now, there are several other things which I want to point out here by way of introduction. Not only is it the revelation that is in the revelation or the revelation of the revelation, which is Jesus. We also want to consider the reason for the revelation. The reason for the revelation is given to us also right here. Look at verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And heed the things which are written in them, for the time is near. Twofold thing here. Blessed are you who read or hear this. You notice it doesn't say, confused are those who read this. Upset are those who read this. Unable to understand are those who read this. Blessed are those who read this. Blessed are those who hear this. And not only blessed are those who hear this, but notice that it says, blessed are those who heed it. Who heed this. Who hear this and heed this book. Therefore, you know it has to be able to be heeded by His people. It's not confusing. It's not upsetting. It's given to you to listen to what Jesus says and to do what Jesus says. And we will find that particularly true and have found that particularly true with the message to the churches that we've seen over the years. I can remember when we first studied the book of Ephesians, the first year that we did this. Because I'll say this and now I'll say it again. That even though it was written to specific churches, we gain much from what Jesus had to say to those churches. He talked to those churches intimately. He told them things they were doing right. In some cases, He told them things that they were doing wrong. And we as a church of Jesus Christ want to know what He thinks of our church, of us, of what we're doing if we're doing the right thing, if we're doing something wrong, oh Jesus, we want to know. Don't you really want to know? I do. And one of the things he said in the first year we looked at this was at Ephesians. If you look at Ephesians and it says to them that they had lost their first love. Verse 4 of chapter 2. They had left their first love. You know what happens to a lot of Christians in their lives? They get going, they get going. When they're first saved, boy, they're excited. They love Jesus and they're excited and they're really blown and going and they're just doing everything for the Lord and, and, and time goes on and time goes on and time goes on. And they sort of just kind of become routine. They just kind of get into a pattern and it's routine. I don't ever want that. Worshiping Jesus should never be routine. That's what happened to the church of Rome. It's just tradition. You go, you stand, you kneel, you stand, you kneel, you stand, you kneel, and then you go. It's just tradition. They put in the moments. They put in the hours. They put in their time for Jesus. We don't ever want to be like that. We don't want to lose our first love. 
That's what Jesus said to the church at Ephesians. And it sent shockwaves through our church. Just powerful stuff. We don't want to lose our love for Jesus. These are things that Jesus says. Don't lose your first love. And we want to do them even here. He may have said it to Ephesus or to the church at Ephesus. But we, we don't want to lose our first love here in Bayonet Point. We want to be faithful to God even here in North Tampa Bay. So the thing, things like this, John says to these churches, and he says these to uh, encourage the saints. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who read these things. Don't you? And when you think of the book of Revelation for a minute, and I'm sure most of you are, are basically familiar with, with what's in the book of Revelation. Don't, don't you think that as you read through it, aren't you blessed even as you read through the book of Revelation because it shows the glory of Christ? I mean, right here in this chapter, if you go down a little bit and you come to verses 9 and following, and John sees him and he sees Jesus and all this glory and splendor, and I can't take the time to even read it, but you know what it says. He's standing there glowing and it's bright and it's amazing. That's, that's Jesus in His glory. That ought to be a blessing to you to see your Savior in His glory. Remember the Mount of Transfiguration? This, this, is, this is what the disciples saw. Jesus, in, in some of His glory, may not have been quite like this, but in some of His glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is what the disciples saw. And here it is a description for you, His children, to see. This is a book of encouragement, a blessing to His children as they see the glory of Christ. It also shows the glory of God. If you turn over to chapter 4 and 5 and you see God on His throne in all splendor and majesty and glory. What a picture! Strange to us maybe now seeing or reading about these things, but it, it won't be. We will see these things. But here is... Showing you the glory of God. That ought to be of an encouragement. What a blessing to see the glory of your God. He is God. He is on the throne. There's no one, there's no rival here before His throne. It's Him. He's the glorious God, the Creator of heaven and earth. And then it also ought to be encouraging to us even as we see the supernaturalness of our faith. Look at all of this. We see dead people who are alive. We see creatures that are strange to us bowing down before the throne of God. Our faith is supernatural. Just as you would never want to grow tired of your love for Jesus, don't ever grow tired of realizing that this faith that we have is supernatural faith. It may not look like anyone's here, but the Bible tells us that Christ is in the midst of His church. That's also in the book of Revelation in chapter 1. He is in the midst of His church. We'll talk a little bit about that next week. But when we gather together, when a church that is a church, that is a genuine church, and genuinely seeks to worship the God of the Bible, gathers together, there He is in the midst of His church. So it may not look like He's here, but He promises that He is. And we believe that He is. Our faith, our religion, our church is supernatural. 
It reaches beyond the natural to the unseen. And the book of Revelation pulls the veil back just a little bit, lets us see into that a little. So that ought to be a blessing. That ought to be an encouragement. First, first of all, then, it's an encouragement to the saints. Blessed are you who read this book and heed it. But also, it's an encouragement for us to persevere. This is what he says to the churches over and over and over again. Blessed are you who persevere. Hang in there. No matter what enemies you face, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer, hang in there. Persevere. Stick it out to the end. You know the Scripture says, blessed are you who persevere to the end. You're the ones who are saved. It never says start off great. doesn't talk about how you start. The Bible talks about how you end. Perseverance of the saints. A true Christian will persevere to the end. A true Christian will persevere and look like it to the end. He won't start off good, fall away, and oh, well, he made the decision. He'll go to heaven when he dies. He's living in the gutter. He's a drunk. He's a crackhead. He's on cocaine. All this stuff. Well, he made a decision one time. Now, don't get me wrong. It could be that that could happen to some. But it seems to be that that's the whole pattern of the church today. With the carnal Christians who live like the devil, but they're going to heaven. The Bible never says that. He who perseveres will be saved. You persevere to the end. You live like a Christian to the end of your life. Once again, I know that there are physical things Alzheimer's and things like that that make people not remember or, re- or realize even what Christianity is. But we're not talking about that. Th- that. Things like that aside, a true Christian will travel his life for Jesus because a true Christian will love his Savior and his King all his life. He will battle against sin. He will battle for holiness. And yes, he will sin and yes, he will fall. But he will get back up and he will battle again. Because that's the nature of a true Christian. Fighting for King Jesus till the day he dies. So this book encourages us to persevere to the end. And it shows some of the things that we'll face. Some of the dangers that we face. And again, in these seven churches, these letters to these churches, he specifically mentions things to these churches. Like beware of that Jezebel woman teacher you got in your church. Remember that Jezebel woman teacher? Joyce Myers, others. I shouldn't say things like that, but I do. (laughs) The fact of the matter is that things like this are wrong and Jesus points them out. Jesus points out specific things. He warns against the synagogues of Satan to have nothing to do with them, to come out from them, to be apart from them. These are the things that he specifically warns to the churches in this book in Revelation 2 and 3. And furthermore, I should say that it ought to encourage us, not only to uh, encourage us in the faith, but encourage us to persevere and encourage us to study because there are some things here that are hard to understand. There are some things in the book of Revelation that require consistent, careful, interpretive principles of hermeneutics. That you utilize these things when you study the Scriptures. And you see from the Scriptures what is being said. For instance, look at verse 1 again of chapter 1. 
Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. Everybody seems to say about the book of Revelation and the things contained in here that this is all stuff that's going to happen someday in the future. Notice what he says. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place. Shortly take place. I suggest to you that without too much difficulty I could show you how much of the book of Revelation has already been fulfilled. Because must shortly take place being 2,000 years, even in Bible terms, that's not shortly. Because the, this, this is 2,000 years old now. And 2,000 years, even in Bible speak, is not shortly. Much of this has happened. Much of the book of Revelation has happened. I can give you the names of several books that you might want to get that will actually show you with very common sense biblical language how much of this has already happened. Because I'm not preaching through the book of Revelation. I'm only preaching on Philadelphia. So if you want to know those things, I'll tell you the names of the books later. But it's happened. A lot of it's already happened. Yes, some of it is to come. He even calls it a prophecy. But prophecy given to Jeremiah was fulfilled. Prophecy given to Isaiah was fulfilled. Prophecy given to John has been fulfilled. Much of it. Again, it encourages us to study. But remember that verse we read in Ephesians, don't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Don't listen to what everybody says. There is a huge difference between historic Christianity and this modern, easy day believism that has cropped up over the last years, the last several decades. There's a huge difference between what people believed just a hundred years ago and what people believe today. And much of what people believed a hundred years ago, what they believe today wasn't even invented yet. And yet now it's live or die by what they say. And if you don't believe this, you must be a heretic. Well, did you know that a hundred years ago people didn't even know that? What? No, I didn't know that. Well, you've you got to study you got to understand. you got to know history. you got to know interpretation. And this book ought to encourage you to do that. It ought to encourage you to do that. To study, to know, to know what the Scriptures say. We, as Christians, need to study the Scriptures. Now, this brings us to our last point here today. The relevancy of this revelation. The relevancy of this revelation. We talked about the revelation in the revelation. We talked about the reason for the revelation. Well, the relevancy of this revelation. Consider verse 4. It says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. The seven churches He speaks about. Jesus, if you look up here, tells John in verse 11, write a book to these churches. This was relevant stuff to every one of those churches. And Jesus, in case you're wondering, even names them before He tells Him what, what to say to them. He names them all right here to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamon, Thyatira, Sardis, to Philadelphia, Laodicea. He names the churches. 
What does that tell you? These were real churches. These were real places. These were the real seven churches in what we call Asia Minor. They were really there. And if you look on a map, and I hope you do, if you Google it, or I like to Bing rather than Google, but if you do that and you find it, they'll give you maps. And you can see these were actual churches in an actual location. I like to think of it as like a preaching route because that's what it was. Men of God, like the Apostle Paul, likely established these churches. And there was a whole preaching route. You set course and you land in the, in the port of Ephesians or the port of Ephesus. And then Ephesus is book one. And you go up to the next book. And you get up to the top here, which is what? Pergamum, third, number three. What a city, Pergamum. I remember dealing with that. What an amazing city that was. They had a huge library there and a huge altar, which was actually uh, uncovered and taken back to Germany and is now in Berlin. And Cleopatra was given the library by Anthony as a birthday present. This huge, huge library that was in Pergamum was taken by Anthony and given to Cleopatra as a present. So that's the top city. You know, it's up here. And then you start coming down to the other cities. Philadelphia is almost directly across from Ephesus. It's a little north and it's a little east, but it's almost directly across from Ephesus, down like that. So it was a whole preaching route that was there where the, where the uh, ministers of the gospel would go. These were real churches. And they had real people. And they had real problems. And God really addressed those problems. Some like to say today that these were just churches that represented epochs. Well, the first church, Ephesus, was the early church and the next church was the church for the next decade or the next couple of thousand, hundred years or something. And, and, and that's just not true. These were real churches. Some like to say Laodicea today. There's a couple of things that Jesus says to some of these other churches that is really right on to churches today. Like, you're dead! And then that, that's more like the church today even than Laodicea. But uh, that's just not true. These were real churches that were there and that men like the Apostle Paul went to and ministered to. I assure you people that the book of Revelation was not given so that John Hagee or Jack Van Ippy could tell you what it means. Like it was all kept secret and dormant for 2,000 years until John Hagee tells you what it means. Or pick any one of these modern day TV preachers with, the, with their, oh, we, here's what the book of Revelation says and all of this and all... It was not, that's not what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation was relevant to those real churches. And as I said a little while ago, it is relevant to us. Jesus Christ, as He warns these churches, warns us, warns this church to heed what He says to the church. And He promises that the one that endures will be blessed. But if you don't, you will die. Where are all seven of these churches? Dead and gone. There's not one of them left. 
The cities are still there. But they're mostly Muslims now. Islam has taken over. The churches are gone. God help us to remain faithful to Him and to heed Him as the head of the church that we will continue on to proclaim His truth for years and years to come. This book, therefore, is not just to them. It's to us. And we, as children of God, must heed what the head of the church says even to this church. Now, you, many of you have missed some of, the, some of the tough stuff that Jesus said to some of the churches in past years. Philadelphia is like the only good church. But you know what? I hope, I see a lot of Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia. And I hope and I pray that it will be of great encouragement to us as we go through what Jesus says to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And as we close today, I've said this over and over again. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. Is He yours? That's the issue you must wrestle with. Because there's a lot that He says about those who refuse to follow and it's not good. I pray that even today you will consider some of these things and consider whether or not Christ is the head of you, of your family, of your life. Let's pray.